HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to the Gastronomica podcast. It's my pleasure to be here today with Camille Bejan, whose article is featured in the 2022 winter issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. The article is entitled, Don't Wait for Me for Lunch, A Voyage, A Memory Collage Through a Family Food Archive. And it's a moving personal and scholarly journal through the intersection of French post-war culinary and cultural negotiations. For our listeners who may not have had a chance to read the article yet, Camille, could you give us a little description of it? Yeah, good morning. Um, absolutely. So uh, <clears throat> the article uh, braids uh, several stories. Uh, the one of my uh, great-grandfather, uh, Marcel Bizos, who uh, just after the war was uh, appointed to be um, an inspector of the French leases abroad. Um, and it's, it was quite um, a distinguished post uh, to have. Um, before that, he was a professor of Latin and Greek. And so in this role, he traveled the world in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, until he retired. And I've always known about his travels because he brought back a lot of uh, objects, uh, jewelry, um, fabrics that um, my family still has. He also took uh, color slides, um, color photographs during his pictures. So it's really, it's, uh, you can see the, the whole world in the 50s in color. And then um, he also wrote letters home. And so in my family, we also have his, uh, the letters that he wrote, mostly to his wife, a little bit to his two surviving kids, uh, my grandmother and her brother, um, him and his wife, um, my great-grandmother, had uh, two older sons that um, died during the war. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we don't have the letters from the, my great-grandmother, so I don't know. I guess he was traveling so much, he may not have kept them. 
Um, so it's a bit one-sided, uh, but it's an amazing archives that I've been meaning to uh, write about uh, for years now. Uh, so that's uh, one side of the story. The other side of the story that I tell is how I got to have the time uh, to finally uh, take this project of the back burner. And um, that story is the one of how uh, just as the pandemic started, um, I ended up being um, diagnosed with a brain tumor and therefore I'm on leave. And so I also braid this story um, into the narrative. And there's layers and several layers to it because I had also just became a new mom and I got diagnosed when I was in France. Um, and I was in France uh, because my dad was um, in palliative care because he was dying of a brain tumor. Um, all brain tumors are not related, but um, genetically related. <laughs> um, and so that's a story that I also had to tell um, in a way, uh, probably to be able to um, take it in. You know, I think um, I putting it in words helped me understand what had just happened. Um, and the two started as uh, separate projects. And then at some point, it just made sense to mesh them. Thank you. It's such a moving article. It's gutting um, in so many ways. The It's it's hard even for the reader to, to comprehend the incredible trauma of being diagnosed with a brain tumor at the same moment that your father was dying of a, of a different brain tumor. Um, and there's so much uh, trauma interwoven into this story. And I'd like to come back to that in a little bit. I think it's a very powerful aspect of the story, but I also think it's m remarkable how you have managed to write an article that's not depressing, but is in fact very restorative and therapeutic at the same time, in spite of the, the context behind it. Um, I'd like to kind of get closer to that through a food studies lens. You're a scholar of actually U.S. food history, um, not so much uh, French food history, but this article obviously brings you into conversation with French food history. And I think there's a re recurring theme in food studies approaches um, and many of us in the U.S. Uh, scholars who are attracted to um, international food studies, it's often because of awe and amazement at how um, uh, beautiful and um, elaborate uh, thinking about food is and how intertwined it is culturally, overtly, explicitly. Um, and in France, there's really no separating culture, nationalism and food and the ways that they've been intertwined. And I'm thinking of, you know, for example, those articles and slideshows we see periodically on social media comparing French school lunch with U.S. school lunch and other school lunches around the world. Um, we know that a major part of, you know, kind of the idea of being French, at least as it's presented to, to the outside non-French world, is a certain approach to ingredients, food preparation, ways of eating. And I really love how in your article you bring nuance to your family's relationship to both food and the French National Project. 
Your great-grandfather traveled the world, as you mentioned, as an inspector for the French Lycées. Um, could you explain how you see food connected both formally and informally in terms of what his wife, your great-grandmother, um, her daughter um, and granddaughter and you are, are doing with food and recipes over these generations and through to the present? How does the story of French food as sort of a national cultural project intersect with your family's own stories? Yes, yeah, so I, I should have also said that uh, <clears throat> one of the braided uh, stories that I uh, explore in the article is also the one of um, the culinary history of my family by looking at my great-grandmothers and my grandmothers and my mother's um, uh, written uh, recipe books. Um, because you can see the evolution of the of the family's cooking habits, um, and uh, and how they integrate um, various influences, and um, one of the images uh, that I included in the article that I really like is a photograph of uh, my great grandmother's handwritten recipe book and. Um, she organized her recipe book in a way that I wouldn't really think of doing, but she did it um, alphabetically. So I think she must have collected all the recipes and then one day sat down and wrote them all. And so the first, uh, the R page, uh, the first one uh, starts with Riel Imperatrice. So a rice pudding, um, so like a, a sweet rice dish, um, that uh, was also uh, that she writes is from a magazine called um, Arménager. So something that um, was likely pushed, there's been research on this, by um, the uh, committee to from colonial organizations or like organizations around the Indochina colonies to uh, push uh, the French people in the metropole to eat more of the rice that was produced in Indochina, which is now uh, Vietnam. Um, but rice at that point, I think, was still, um, at least in France, um, a dessert, um, a dessert dish. And then she follows with rillette, so this very French uh, charcuterie. Um, pate, pork pate that my mom still makes. And then she goes to uh, Ria La Libanese, uh, which she learned because um, for about two years during the 1950s, my great grandfather, uh, who I've always known my entire life as Papi, um, so he was Papi, she was Mami, um, they lived in Lebanon uh, for two years. And that's where she learned to basically make pilaf rice. Uh, which is also how we make rice in my in my family, and so it really encompasses this evolution of their uh, of their cooking, because uh, starting in the you know my great mammy was cooking in the twenties thirties, and already in France you see the rise of the star chef, and she would listen to culinary. Um, culinary uh, broadcast on the radio by Edouard de Pomian, 
My great-grandmother was very much a, a cook of the Nouvelle Cuisine and Michel Guérard. And then my mom continued on the same uh, classics and, and basics, but also integrated um, even more uh, trends and basically recipes from around the world also because my uh, dad was uh, working for hotel companies, so we traveled a lot. Um, but to get back to your point about um, f uh, how people see French food, it always fascinates me because when you grow up in a culture, you don't really think about it. Um, so I learned French food a little bit like I learned French. You know, I know what's if a word is masculine or feminine, but I don't remember when I learned it because you just know it. Um, and so, in fact, I only got interested in food history and food studies after I moved to North America. Um, and, you know, I'm not your, I'm a privileged immigrant. I was a student, um, you know, I was I'm solidly middle class. I didn't have to uh, work on the side uh, to go through um uh, through my studies. Um, so I don't have this sort of, you know, classic immigrant story of my school lunch was stinky <laughs> and, you know, people made fun of me and I didn't want the, you know, whatever, Pakistani, Chinese, Italian lunch that my mom was making for me. Uh, but still people were asking me as soon as I arrived in, in Toronto, so 15, 16 years ago, I was a master's student, uh, do you cook French food? Do you cook French at home? And I never had to really ask myself that question. I was just cooking food. And then it's only when I <clears throat> was outside of this context that I really understood uh, what it meant. Uh, well, for people outside of France, but also for French people, the role of food in, in the culture. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Um, something that is unmarked in the in the home context becomes very visible and marked externally. Um, I I love how you use the word collage. You describe the the article title includes the phrase memory collage um, to describe how your family's food memories and connects uh, to your great grandfather's letters. And there there are so many materials that you touch on in this article. It's really quite remarkable in such a short piece. We get to see uh, your great-grandfather's photographs. We hear uh, text from the letters, um, the cookbooks, your grandmother's recipes. There are really um, so many intersecting materials. What does the word collage do for you conceptually in terms of its implication of a visual juxtaposition of unlike objects? How did you choose that that concept as kind of an organizing frame for what you were doing in this in this work? Uh, it wasn't uh, very much. There was I didn't put a lot of forethought in it, but I think it it freed me from um, having to make an academic uh, argument and it freed me from academic writing, um, writing style. And it allowed me to say like, here is a um, bunch of things <laughs> that I want to talk about and you're going to get it in like, a, you know, I think the piece makes sense and you understand um, and it has an arc, uh, but it also freed me from, because I'm, I was 
raised as an academic, uh, it freed me to say I and to bring in historiography when I wanted to bring it in, but um, not always, and to have uh, disparate um, like things in it. So some of it is I'm quoting primary sources, but also my memories. And so it felt a bit like scrapbooking when I, when I wrote it, uh, which is why I think I was drawn to that, uh, to that word. That's a beautiful way to describe it, scrapbooking, because there is a um, very touching um, representation in the article of the memory work that you and your mother are doing in this d- difficult period. I'd like to come back and talk about that, but first, uh, perhaps we can just take a brief pause to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams of new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So we're back uh, with Camille Bejan talking about her article in Gastronomica. Um, And one of the things that I think is really amazing um, in this article is the way that you uh, manage to balance uh, a, a certain level of clear mindedness and even critique of the larger colonial project that's happening in France um, and resulting in the independence movements um, in the in the 20th century. Um, and we see your family in some ways moving through the world. Your great-grandfather is moving through the world with the infrastructure of the French colonial state. Um, but he is also um, extremely open-minded and seems to truly relish and uh, love all of the different places that that he lives and moves. Um, And there's a a way that uh, your family is very influenced by the places that they live, the places that they travel, even while you also acknowledge what you call the imperial redolence of the family's cuisine. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of acknowledging the... um, difficult, uh, even um, disturbing aspects of of the the colonial project that's happening at the same time that there's this uh, lovely family story that's happening amidst it. Could you tell us about how the family's cuisine is developed? And also, I think we have to acknowledge the the post-World War II context in which, in some ways, your great-grandfather's journeys around the world are enabling the family back in France to 
actually eat better than they might otherwise have in a time of war rationing. And so perhaps you could give us a little bit of that context. Yes, because he the places he travels to are not all unknown to him. Uh, because the family also had a history of um, settling in Algeria, being um, settlers, uh, white settlers in Algeria. In fact, uh, so Mami, my great-grandmother, um, was from a family that had been there since very early um, in, the, in the colonization project that started in the 1830s. And uh, so, but they, and she met Papi while he was, um, during World War One while he was um, on a um, release for a few weeks and uh, he was visiting his brother who had also settled in Algeria. So there's also this history where they got married in Algeria, they had their first two sons in Algeria, so they knew um, North Africa uh, quite well, but there wasn't much culinary mixing and uh, the only uh, things that they brought back really, and they left in the 1930s, so before the end of colonization, but the only thing that they really brought back is uh, couscous and a few uh, Spanish sweets because in Algeria you had a lot of the, the settlers, the white settlers, the European settlers, were not all French. There was a lot of Italian, Spanish settlers that uh, sort of became French in Algeria. And so in my great-grandmother's recipe book, there's a few recipes for uh, Spanish uh, cookies. Um, and so my question was also, how did my very white grandmother in the suburb of Paris, why was she making such a good couscous? And so that's where you see the, 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 if you're not a food historian, you can forget about why she was making this couscous. And so I wanted to bring that, uh, bring that back. <clears throat> and so because they had so many family ties in uh, North Africa, Right after the war, it's the the first places where uh, Papi is sent is North Africa, and he knows a lot of people there. And it's also because the French state wants to reaffirm um, its control of uh, the African colonies, um, so North Africa, West Africa, and um, and so he's able to basically use this uh, network of acquaintance. Uh, to send food back home. And when I first read the letters that I didn't understand at first why he kept writing about, like, I'm sending you a kilo of coffee. I'm sending you dates. I'm sending you oil. And I was like, why is he sending food? <laughs> and, you know, making, like, sort of sending his uh, dirty laundry bag so that he has more room for food. Um, and then it clicked um, that uh, his family at home was still under war rationing. And so by with him traveling, they were able to eat better. <clears throat> and during the war, he had um, turned their garden into a vegetable garden. 
And so he also asks, um, have you planted the peas yet? So there's uh, there's a lot of um, sort of, I don't want to say trivial, but there's a lot of practical questions that he asks his wife around provisioning. Um, so his trips are also an opportunity for the family to, yes, to eat better um, than the average in France without having to uh, go into the black market. It's really uh, a, a very interesting story with so many twists and turns. Um, I would like to uh, turn for a moment to some of the more personal aspects that your article describes. And I, I sense as a reader um, some trepidation in terms of how to tell the story because the story you tell in this article is not primarily about your diagnosis uh, with a brain tumor or your father's death from a brain tumor, but that's the context in which it, this project really was developed and and was occurring and the global pandemic and all of the things, uh, the, the pain and fear that your mother um, and your entire family were going through and you were navigating it with the small baby. Um, while the bulk of your article is focused on this more distant and in many ways comparatively um, cheerful accounting of your family's past, we see there's there's tragedy in your family's past as well, of course, um, but there's uh, a lightness to to the, the past chapters that you recount. Um, how does the interlude, so you choose to kind of tell your own story, for example, the significance of the month of March, which kind of is this drumbeat of both um, beginnings and and tragedies in, in your family. Uh, historically, a lot of birthdays, including your own, but also a lot of uh, tragic uh, moments uh, uh, have occurred in March. Um, and you kind of give us this list, this timeline of what March has meant over over the years. And it's it's almost a bullet list. It's it's almost devoid of kind of commentary and it's sort of in the middle of the article in a way that allows the reader to to see it, to hear it, to to experience it, but it's almost a, a parenthesis to the rest of the article. How did you decide to tell the story in that way? And how does um now that a, a little bit of time has gone by. How does this drumbeat of of March <laughs> um, kind of feel for you and your family at this time? Yeah, I think I had to put it there, but it is a bit devoid of of emotions because I don't think it even. <clears throat> there's no point in adding to it. Like it's 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 tough enough, and I don't think I could. Um, add to it from like an emotional uh, point of view. Um, I think I might be the only one in my family that has this this sense of 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 the months of March, um, and it's when I saw that March was also when so Papi's birthday was and um, my grandfather's birthday was, and I never got to meet my grandfather, um, and it's. When so what happened was uh, this was a very good pandemic project because uh, I um, uh, you know it's my archive <laughs> they're they're owned by my family so I didn't have to travel and I could also work on it with my mom who was 
what she did is, well, she uh, transcribed some of the letters and she also typed up the cookbook from uh, Mami and uh, her daughter Geneviève, my grandmother, my mom's mom. And what my mom did is that she wrote little commentaries around the recipes. And so for the recipe, uh, for the couscous recipe, she wrote at the end, um, this was my, um, this was Papi's and my father's um, favorite dish on their common birthdays on March 26th, if I remember well. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know they had the same birthday, the same month as my birthday, the same month. I got diagnosed with my brain tumor with this, the same months my dad got diagnosed and it was couscous. <laughs> and so like, that's when I was like, wow, like this is, this is what I was writing about. And so I had to put it in there because it was, you know, it's one of these things like uh, it happened organically, but you're like, I cannot not mention this. Um, and I think I also wanted, um, you know, this is a very loving family. So, in, and I didn't, and, you know, with the various uh, tragedies, I guess, drama that has happened in my life, um, I've tried to retain a sense of humor about it, uh, a bit dry sometimes, because otherwise you can't, move forward. And so I wanted to get that sense of, um, uh, to convey that sense of love that exists in my family. And the fact that we've kept all these letters and all these slides for several generations is a proof of this, you know, that uh, Papi's story still matters to us. Um, and similarly, that's also why I put um, this little, um, interlude when he's in um, occupied Germany, because it made me laugh so much. Um, so he's in occupied uh, in the f um, part of Germany that was occupied by the French, um, you know, inspecting the, the education system. And he's invited uh, by the Americans to go visit the American education system in the uh, US occupied part of Germany. And it's very it's, I found it's very funny because he, first of all, is absolutely shocked by the, uh, the American students who are not wearing a jacket and chew gum and um, get up as soon as the bell rings, even if the professor hasn't finished their sentence. And so he's incensed by that. And then they invite him to basically like a big dinner. And it's, it was, very interesting for me because I am, you know, I, I, my previous work has been focused on the U.S. in part because I think, you know, you always need to study something that's, well, I always need to study until this article, something that's a bit exotic to you. So for me, it was the U.S. <laughs> um, and he basically describes this dinner that is basically some sort of turkey dinner and he doesn't recognize cranberry sauce. He thinks it's uh, some sort of beet jam. And it's like a really a takedown of American food. Um, and like, oh my God, they dance in between the, the dishes and they're trying to like 
play jazz in his, you know, while he's having uh, his lunch. And it's, uh, it, it was just very funny. Like I, I, I laugh out loud when I read it. And so I was like, okay, like this also needs to be part of it because, um, and what I like is that it also shows that, you know, there's some things when he goes to West Africa, he's not an adventurous eater. You know, I think North Africa, he knows it, he's lived there. When he goes to North Africa, you know, he goes to the market and he eats peanuts. <laughs> um, but I like the fact that, um, you know, we have to remember that people didn't travel a lot. Uh, and so to him, this American turkey dinner is as exotic as, um, you know, a spicy dish he might eat in, in West Africa. And so I, I, I really, really wanted that to be there to show that, because um, he's also not devoid of, um, you know, I don't want to paint him as this very open-minded man because he's not devoid of the colonial stereotype. Um, you know, he was a, a man of his time. And I, I think I, I write about that in the article. It's like, well, that's not an excuse. <laughs> yes, you grew up in this sort of racist colonial context, but um, doesn't mean you have to agree with it. And so it was kind of reassuring that uh, the Americans were... Um, you know, as much under his fire <laughs> as anybody else. Um, so I really wanted that to be there. Um, also, probably because I'm a, you know, scholar also of U.S. food. So mm -hmm. um, that was a very vivid um, excerpt that you shared with us. And I also found it very humorous how he describes the meal. And I, I was also found myself imagining, I think he's talking about cranberries there without realizing that they're cranberries. Um, so it was a nice sort of defamiliarization of what sounds like sort of Thanksgiving food um, in the U.S. context, uh, turkey and cranberries and sweet potatoes. Um, and and you do have a clear-eyed understanding of his, his shortcomings in terms of how he was judging in ways that were perhaps both typical and not excusable for, for his time in terms of how he was, he was judging those amongst whom he was living and traveling. Um, I think one of the beautiful aspects of your article and something that I think kind of draws together these personal strands with the scholarly strands comes towards the end of the article. Um, you tell us that you have an aversion to the idea of legacy and memory making, um, but you came to realize that relationships with the dead uh, play an important role in navigating your own life circumstances and the things that you're going through. Um, there's a quote I'd like to read. You say, quote, I came around to the idea that our relationships with our dead ones keep going after they pass, keep evolving. After all, I was writing about my great grandfather, someone I had never met. I was also writing about my sensory memories of my grandmother's cooking, how generations of cooks build a family menu through hard and good times, through love and trauma. Nothing that should have been news to a scholar of food in the senses, yet it took feeling it to fully understand it. Now that some time has passed since you wrote this piece, uh, what is your current thinking about this relationship between the personal and the scholarly, the dead and the living? Um, how does this affect you today? 
Yeah, I think this <clears throat> this paragraph is really where I landed after a lot of thinking. I, f- I found that the word legacy was just so um, big and final and um, and also because, um, you know, I, I just had, had a kid. I want to live my life without having to think about uh, what will he remember. I, you know, when I started writing this, I was in, in a place where... Um, the, the stakes were very high. And so I think by refusing this, this idea, I lowered the stakes for myself. Um, it's very hard to think about, you know, when I, when I write that, I also, I was also thinking of my own legacy because when you have a, you know, um, aggressive brain tumor diagnosis, you just, you kind of have to, um, I'm on a very, effective clinical trial now. Um, but what I realized is that, um, and you know, legacy in the cancer world has a big, uh, has even a bigger um, sort of shadow. Um, but I think what I wanted to express is that um, uh, one creates a legacy just by living, by being oneself. And others are left to interpret it, to do whatever they want with it, because you can't control that. And um, and so that's kind of, in a way, the article is a bit of a show and tell that way. Um, I don't know whether he, you know, Papi would have wanted me to write this. I've never met him, <laughs> but I still think about him. He's still part of my family. Um, and so I think it was... Um, it's almost that paragraph is almost me talking to myself <laughs> uh, and being like, it's okay, you know, like um, they'll do whatever they want uh, with all of that. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where where I've landed. And mm-hmm. yeah. You're drawing to mind... Uh insights from feminist scholarship, which really try to honor and give weight to the repetitive um, roles, the the social reproductive labor that has historically fallen more on women's shoulders than men's. Um, And I'm thinking about this sort of um, aspect of your great grandmother, Suzanne, holding down the fort, you know, um, reporting on how the garden is doing and, you know, what's happening with the larder and whether the seedlings have sprouted yet um, as a puppy is, is traveling around the world. And there's a sharing that he does in terms of, you know, bringing not only ingredients, but really participating in the food culture of the family. But there's something about that repetitive aspect of getting up and making meals and doing it again tomorrow and doing it again the day after tomorrow. Um, And the ways that that sort of builds a legacy um, that I think is honored in your piece, Um, the marginal notes in a recipe book, um, the collection of cookbooks over time, the dog-eared pages and um, 
memories that go into when a particular couscous was prepared for someone's birthday. And so I think that's a really beautiful way to think about history making and just the labor that's both scholarly in terms of archival work, but also interpersonal and families. Um, I think that's a really wonderful place to to wind up to think about you know the contributions of your article, um, but I we would be remiss in closing without having uh, a little bit of update in terms of what you have cooking now and the scholarly front, um, what kind of projects you're working on, and whether this is something that's going to continue to animate your scholarly agenda or was this a one time um, piece and now you've uh, gone back to other topics well before i uh, I, I get to that i want to thank you for mentioning this repetitive labor because i'm right now raising a a preschooler and i uh, <laughs> i am in it uh and it's it's actually interesting to raise him in this uh, you know in two culinary cultures um and we have meals that are you know he's for instance, I make a lot of croque-monsieur, which are really fancy, like grilled cheese with ham. And so, because my husband is Canadian, we serve it with tomato soup. You never serve a croque-monsieur with tomato soup in France, but this is what we do in my family now. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, what's coming, um, actually... I, I want to keep working on this. Um, there's two things that could happen. Um, there's, uh, I'd like to do something with these letters, but <clears throat> I cannot be a historian of everything. <laughs> and um, so I would need to really work on, uh, and I really like collaborative work. Um, because just before I was sick, I was also working already outside of academia uh, as a public historian. And so I've, I've learned the beauty of collaborative work. Um, so it would be maybe about editing, if I find enough people interested in these letters, editing a book with, um, you know, a chapter on the history of education, a chapter on um, I don't know, the history of travel in the 50s, 60s. Um, I think there's something to be done there. But from the sort of more memoirish angle, um, you know, we were talking about collage. And one of the the way I've been thinking about it now is in terms of crumbs. And so I want to keep following this trail of crumbs. And um, so I'm I'm working on a, well, Right, a book project right now, it's a book proposal project <laughs> that would sort of um, unfurl some of these points that are in this uh, March chronology. Um, so I want to write about my experience of, but always true of food angles. I, I want to write about my experience of, and I have written about my experience of breastfeeding because up till the point I was diagnosed, I was exclusively breastfeeding because my kid wouldn't take a bottle. <laughs> And I also want to, you know, I, <clears throat> in this March timeline, there's a little bit about my dad was diagnosed while we were all traveling um, uh, in Northern Thailand and we were in Chiang Mai. And so I want to write about our experience of uh, failed culinary tourism in Chiang Mai 
And it was actually very interesting and has um, some parallel with um, all these uh, fire and smog situations that we've uh, seen the, in the last week because we went to Chiang Mai so in, in March and um, there's a lot of slash and burn agriculture happening there. So you're supposed to go to Chiang Mai for these beautiful lush views of the rice paddies. Uh, but we were, you couldn't see anything. It was smoke everywhere because it's at this uh, trans-border region uh, with China, Myanmar and Thailand. And so there's a lot of deforestation that happens with slash and burn agriculture. So, you know, we were like, the, this past weeks, it was it was all about like, oh my God, New Yorkers can't, um, can't breathe. But it happens every year in Thailand for the past 10, 15 years, I've been looking a little bit into this. And um, so I, I want to write about that. And then I, um, I also want to write about my experience of what we were talking about earlier of how it is only when moving to a global diasporic city like Toronto that I realized I was interested in food history and food studies, despite arguably having grown up at the, well, what people see as, you know, a culinary center and what the French want people to see as a culinary center. And that's, and that goes back to this sort of, you know, my papi was traveling the world um, and education was a part of the cultural influence, soft power of France. But uh, now it's uh, cuisine and luxury goods. And I think he was also right at the time where that switched. Um, so I'd like to explore that uh, a little bit. So, but so following the the crumbs. Mm -hmm. I love the metaphor of following the crumbs. And mm. I'm sure many of our listeners will be very eager to follow the crumbs with you as these projects take shape. It's been so lovely to talk to you about this article and um, really a joy to not only publish your piece in the Gastronomica Journal, but to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.